That was spectacular. The word mindfulness has become trite, ubiquitous. It may just be a passing fad, or it may be a life-giving antidote to the increasing pace of our lives and skyrocketing levels of anxiety. It's wound its way into modern life in a modern way. There are dozens of apps designed to teach and promote stopping to pay attention in the midst of your day. Take a break. Aura, that's one. Breeze, breathe with two E's. Budify, calm. Those are just the ones at the top of the alphabet. Personally, I'm a fan of one called Insight Timer. Naturally, quick to jump on any trend, marketers are promoting products claiming to cause or promote mindfulness. What better place to meditate than in an ergonomic seat with fresh leather aromatherapy, quality sound system, while driving the Buick Regal GS? Been doing it wrong all these decades. So Buick ran a digital campaign encouraging drivers to be hashtag in the moment and engage in life instead of being buried in their smartphones. Thanks, Buick. Actually, being mindful while driving isn't far-fetched. I use all sorts of reminders to be fully present on my commute to Hope or running errands. We can pay alert, relaxed attention in any mode of transport. Luxury sedan, last middle seat in the airplane, bumpy tuk-tuk, skating, jogging, biking, even walking. Or even standing still, or let's say sitting here right now in this sanctuary. We can tap into mindfulness. We'll give it a practice a little later. Mindfulness is extremely portable. What mindfulness is beyond hashtags and celebrity endorsements or the yoga studio down the street? It's the translation of a word that is both from Sanskrit and from Pali, from the sacred texts, which means it appears in both Hindu and Buddhist teachings. You may know historically that Buddhism was a reformation of the Hindu emphasis on castes and hierarchy. That's why things often show up in both languages. But one religion doesn't surpass the other, just addresses the cultural ills of the day. So it was back in 1881 that a translation of the Pali word sati was written as mindfulness. But the word choice begins to hint that it's a spiritual practice that's expansive beyond just saying, pay attention. A clue to its richness comes from mind and heart being the same word in Sanskrit and Pali. A better way to translate sati might be heartfulness 
pay attention with your whole heart. Only now is Western science, medicine, and religious traditions returning to explore how the mind and heart are one. This is an effort to untangle the writings of Descartes and Humes and Locke that set up this false dichotomy, mind, body. When I arrived at Hope six years ago, the emphasis here was on mind. The church saw itself as an institute of rational thought. The emphasis was, then, and is, a corrective reaction to gobbledygook theology, asking believers to swallow narrow half-truths about history and ancient texts and themselves. But rational thought isn't enough. It doesn't encompass the full human experience, which I believe a good religion, religious system must. In my view, the heart seemed to be missing here at Hope. The church idealized the notion of being right. There was little hospitality for emotional and spiritual needs. But what I've witnessed is this church opening its heart to possibilities of many ways of being in community, of being religious without betraying logic and science and facts. So what is mindfulness, heartfulness? Some modern teachers describe what we're aiming for in the practice. I'll start with the living teacher, John Kabat-Zinn, who's a pioneer in bringing mindfulness to secular spaces, to science, to medicine, both for healthcare workers and patients. John Kabat-Zinn's working definition is, Mindfulness is awareness. It means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. Many of you are familiar with the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh. His definition goes, I define mindfulness as the practice of being fully present and alive, body and mind united. Mindfulness is the energy that helps us to know what is going on in the present moment. I drink water, and I know that I'm drinking the water. Drinking the water is what is happening. Mindfulness brings concentration. When we drink water mindfully, we concentrate on drinking. If we are concentrated, Life is deep, and we have more joy and stability. We can drive mindfully. We can cut carrots mindfully. We can shower mindfully. When we do things this way, concentration grows. When concentration grows, we gain insight into our lives. So bear with me. I have one more. The University of Berkeley has uh, the Great Good Sciences Center. It's an interdisciplinary research center studying psychology, sociology, and neuroscience of well-being. And their collective definition of heartfulness, mindfulness, reads, 
Mindfulness means maintaining a moment-by-moment awareness of our thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, and surrounding environment. Mindfulness also involves acceptance, meaning that we pay attention to our thoughts and feelings without judging them. Without believing, for instance, that there's a right or wrong way to think or feel in a given moment. When we practice mindfulness, our thoughts tune into what we're sensing in the present moment rather than rehashing the past, imagining the future. So notice how these definitions not only describe the quality of awareness, but clarifies our universal tendency to judge that moment. And that moment, when you're judging, you're stepping out of mindfulness. I'm aware of the light on my face, the soles of my feet in my shoes, my heart beating, the fear of losing my place on the page, and the lack of humidity in this room. It's lovely. But then I think I don't really like these shoes. I wonder if sandals are on sale. I think they are. See, I've moved on from this moment, and I'm out shopping in my mind. Can we go shopping, Joe? Again, these wandering away thoughts are not bad, right or wrong, but they keep us from drinking in everything that's happening. The choices we make, the words we say, the actions we do or do not do are infinitely better when we're fully aware of the moment. Literally, we have more accurate data. Here's my classic lack of mindfulness. I'm in a conversation, listening, while also busy judging what the other person is saying. And I'm 15 seconds ahead of the conversation, already in some fictional future, imagining what I need to say. Need. (laughs) That's a judging word. I miss the fullness of what the other person is saying. I might miss valuable physical cues. You know, only 7%. 7% of communication is based on the actual words we say. The rest is 38% comes from the tone of voice. And the remaining 55%, more than half, comes from body language. Not fully listening or seeing, I either interrupt blurting out what I'm prepared to say, or say something really insipid. When I'm mindful, what I might say next might be a clarifying question or an acknowledgement of the feelings of the other person. These more skillful responses rooted in paying full attention might actually deepen the conversation cement the relationship, clarify misunderstandings, make a small bridge if we're on other sides of political or social issues. It makes it rooted in reality. It allows it to be truly communal, this conversation, not as 
ego-driven. So like all Buddhist teachings, the point of mindfulness is to alleviate suffering, your own suffering and that of the world. The Buddha taught mental suffering arises out of ignorance. By ignorance, he means the mind's understanding of the nature of reality. So if you're not fully paying attention, don't have all the data, oh my, you can be ignorant. I can be, ha. Huh. So sure, sure. Being mindful of beautiful things, that sounds fabulous, right? Really soak in that sunset. But do we have to be mindful of awful situations? When my boss is berating me? Can I just tune him out? My child is whining. Isn't ignoring it the best parenting practice? Yes. What if I'm in danger? Being mindful of pain, fear, loss, danger, actually allows us <clears throat> to see it as ever-changing. And it begins to offer a wider array of responses. We're not such slaves to habitual reactions. Our reaction becomes more supple and nuanced. For example, <clears throat> when I am mindful of my hunger, I can begin to see that much of it is habit. Some of it is actually thirst, not hunger. Some of it's just purely desire, and some of it's honest hunger. And I can begin to make different food choices and even taste my food more. Also, being mindful of both the beautiful and the awful is at the core of compassion. My boss may be berating me because of a whole set of circumstances I cannot see. It may have nothing to do with me. And I realize, oh, I've done that before. I've lashed out at someone. I've been overwhelmed. I've taken it out on others. Oh, we are the same, my boss and I. I can set boundaries to avoid the abuse, but I can also respond, hopefully, in a way that doesn't escalate the problem. As one of my teachers, Jack Cornfield, writes, Mindfulness is first a spacious, kind, non-judging awareness of the present. Second, mindfulness includes an appropriate response to the present situation. Notice the word kind in there. Yes, bring kindness to the best and the worst. It allows our response to be more appropriate, whatever it may be. And it's not about being a doormat in the face of abuse, but having more options at your fingertips. Another teacher, Tara Brock, with training as a psychologist, says, and mindfulness present is not some exotic state that we need to search for or manufacture. 
In the simplest terms, it is the felt sense of wakefulness, openness, and tenderness that arises when we're fully here and now with our experience. You've surely tasted presence, even if you didn't call it that. Perhaps you've been lying awake in bed and listening to crickets on a hot summer night. You might have sensed presence while walking alone in the woods. You might have arrived at full presence as you witnessed someone dying or being born. Presence is the awareness that is intrinsic to our nature. It's immediate, embodied, perceived through our senses. We already do this. You know, this is actually the universalist branch of our tradition, talking. No one is ever dooming us to hell. With attention and mindfulness, we can expand or rediscover the heart of our heart. The spacious, kind, non-judging awareness of ourselves, our interior lives, and then of others, our exterior lives. And what meditation is, is simply creating the best conditions to practice mindfulness, paying attention to how your own mind works, recognizing that this is intrinsic to your nature. I've said before, meditation practice is like going to the gym where they have all the equipment you need and instructors to help get strong and stay healthy. And that's what a meditation practice is for your mind and your heart. Because then when you leave the gym, you're stronger and you react and can have more fun and stand up straight and not be in such pain. So when you practice meditation, you're able to have it be portable. Be more mindful in situations where you may be on autopilot or may be stressful. And with practice, you begin to see the tricks your mind plays to yank you away from the present moment. My mind makes lists, rehashes events and conversations, tweaking them for better or different outcomes. My mind is often cruel and berates me. My mind makes grand and glorious plans for the future. Or funnily enough, I'm often the starring player and hero. My ego gets to take over. As Sister Ellie, who was in this pulpit a few weeks ago, notes, the ego is a tool among many. Give it a seat at the table, but not at the head. She describes mindfulness, and this is the most simple definition and helpful. She describes mindfulness as seeing what is happening while it's happening, without judgment, no matter what. Well, wait a minute. We're not a Buddhist church. We're Unitarian. Why are we talking about this? Because it's in an invaluable life tool. Heartfulness will impact each meeting at this church, each email, each plan you make, worship, music, it supercharges all parts of this church and our life together. So let's stop talking about heartfulness. 
since I often find being at Hope a bowl full of cherries. And last night's exquisite party, I'll just do it this way. If um, someone in each of the different sections could take, is willing to get up and uh, pass out cherries and napkins, Just take a couple. Yeah, anything. Anything. <laughs> Not to worry. It's all good. I hope no one's allergic to cherries after the service. If you're aller allergic, tell me what else I could have brought. I couldn't think of a dang thing. <laughs> Pass them out, but don't start eating them. <laughs> Although I do have more. If something happens and you're like, oh, I wasn't mindful and I ate it. <laughs> Take a napkin for your stem and your pit. There's a trash can right out the door when we leave. So we can all wait mindfully. Simply notice everything you can while this is happening. Taking in your own position in your seat. Scanning how your body is feeling. Notice what you witness as the bowl is passed. Notice how you choose which cherry you get. Do you want the red ones or the little yellow ones, huh? There's information there. Just put it on the chair, thanks. Oh, I need one. So this exercise may feel awkward, performative, embarrassing, exciting, even fun. Just notice how your mind receives this change in the sermon. What we're going to do is make use of all our senses. So my instructions are just to use each sense as an anchor to bring yourself to this present moment. And when your mind wanders away, gently bring it back to what we're doing. Note, if you habitually say, oh, I can't do this, or this is a bunch of hooey, or I bet these were on sale. I need to get a bunch at home. I had cherries once in Michigan on vacation. That was the summer that Aunt Glenda insulted our son. She is such a mean, and you're off. So whatever your mind is up to, just notice it. No right or wrong here. We're kind without judgment. Like mind scientists, we're simply observing our mind's habits. We're not getting entangled in them. 
So let's first start just by looking at the cherry we chose. What do you notice? And how does it feel? Does it smell? Okay. Now, don't pit all, don't bite all the way to the pit. If you can like bite the end so you bite all the way through, but see if you hear things, what it feels like. Roll it around in your tongue. Then I'm going to let you eat the rest of it, however. Just notice. Anybody need a napkin? We have tons more. So I didn't. I don't have a mic runner. Um, don't don't worry, Larry. I'm just gonna have people shout out, and I will repeat so those who can't hear can hear it. Is there anything that you experienced, or an aha, or I never noticed that, or? Joanna said, I don't think I've ever listened to what it sounds like when I bite into it. It was crunchy. Mary's cherry looked like a heart. Heartfulness, yes. Yes. Ah, yeah, it is a complex taste, isn't it? I bit into mine and it looked just like a little mini uh, apricot because I had one of those yellow ones and the way the pit lay, it just looked, looked like it. Someone had something over here. Ah, Carmen's looked like an apple. <laughs> she said, this is the only time she's eaten just one. <laughs> Of course, Maggie, I have to explain this. <laughs> Maggie said she generally pops the whole thing in her mouth and doesn't take a single bite. And so this presented a problem since they were juicy of how do you do that and not dribble it all down your front? <laughs> Lottie.
She licked it. You mean once you'd bitten into it and opened it, or, or you licked before the outside? I, before, I, before you bit into it. No, after I bit the little... Right. Then I took that little opening and licked that opening. It was very cherry. Right. She licked it after she had bit that first end, and it was very cherry. And I wonder why they're so shiny. Are they covered with something? Because mine didn't smell. Didn't smell like cherry. But then I bit into it. Jim. <laughs> Great question. I did. <laughs> no, I did. I, I washed them last night in our sink, put them in the fridge. So just try this some other time. There's, there's a whole slew of um, people do chocolate meditations, what it's like to really eat a square of chocolate and not go... <laughs> <laughs> At the point, I'm going to do an orange communion because it's early in the morning. Um, What I want to say is um, it it does. It It can make the experience richer. It's not humanly possible. It is not humanly possible to be mindful every single moment of your life. We're human. We get distracted. and So it's not terrible when you get distracted. Remember, this is gentle, no right and wrong. As Christina Feldman says about mindfulness, one of the effects is that it illuminates the world inwardly and outwardly. It brings things to light. We can see this in a very practical manner. If you go for a walk in the garden while your mind is filled with distractions, you may realize nothing has touched you. If you do the exactly same exercise with mindful awareness, the world comes to life. Inwardly, mindfulness reveals our personal story, the way our minds work, our patterns, our habits, our views, our aspirations, our hopes. But it also brings light to the universal story of which we are a part. So may you have mindful moments this week. We do have some extra cherries for those of you for whom one is not enough. (laughs) May you have mindful moments this week and feel connected to your place in the universal story. May it be so.